Have a seat, everybody. My name's Nate. I am one of the pastors here at SOMA. I am so, so excited to be with you all this morning and to share with you uh, from God's word. I, I love you all very much, and it's just an absolute joy to be able to open God's word together and to listen to what he has to say to us. We've been studying all throughout this month to start our year off the I am statements that Jesus made in the book of John. Now, we do this so that we can orient ourselves to him and with him in this new year. Before we'd been studying the book of Exodus for a really long time, when God revealed himself to Moses, and Moses said, who should I tell the people that sent me? God said, you can tell him, I am sent you. His personal name, his name of authority, and we see Jesus in the book of John taking that name for himself and declaring himself over and over and over again as the I am. And these statements are both statements of authority. I am, I have the power, I am the one who created all this, but they're also invitations to receive help. Just like God said to Moses, I am and I am the one who's going to deliver you. Jesus is saying to all of us that he has the authority and that he is inviting us in to deliverance. These I am statements that Jesus makes, these are central to the Apostle John's claim in his book that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi, a teacher, a wise man. He is Almighty God himself. And when we study these statements, we look at these things Jesus says about himself. They anchor us to our purpose in being a community. What, we, what we're doing here. Why we get together every week and open his word and sing and pray and worship together. The church of Jesus Christ is not a social club. We are not here just to have people to hang out with. We're not here to be entertaining. I'm really glad of that. We're not here to just entertain one another. We are not here primarily because we are interested in accomplishing political or societal aims. We are here to worship the I am. And worshiping the I am together is going to have all kinds of consequences in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our country. It's going to have all kinds of impact and consequences. But we don't ever forget what we are really called to. And that is to worshiping this I am, this Jesus. Jesus is not a president. This is not his country. He is a king and we are his subjects. And we live in a rebellious land occupied by the enemy. He is not a means to an end. He is the beginning and the end of all things. He is the great I am. Jesus is not how we get what we want. Jesus is what we want. And so this morning we're going to look at the last night Jesus spent on earth before his crucifixion. Uh, we're going to be in John 13 and John 14. That's page 525 in the Blue Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that blue one. Uh, that's our gift to you. 
525 there. We're going to look at John 13, verse 31. And Jesus was with his disciples just on that last night, the night before the cross. And John tells us just before that, that having loved his own who were in the world, he was now about to show them the full extent of his love. He was going to love them to the very end. And he was with the 12, only now we're down to 11, because Judas has just left. Judas has just left to betray him, and Jesus is just with his best friends, sharing with them the most urgent, necessary things they need to know, because the next day he's going to go to the cross, and they're not aware of it. So read with me, if you will, John 13, 31 and following, and it says, when he had gone out, that's Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we've talked recently, just a few weeks ago in Isaiah 6, about what this idea of glory means. The physical manifestation of God's presence and power is what we call glory, right? And the angels in the throne room of God stand and call to each other all the time. Glory, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they call out for his glory to fill the whole world. And now Jesus is saying, that same way you know God is present, that's now present in me. I'm now being glorified by the Father, even as I glorify him. Jesus, the presence of God has been made plainly visible in Jesus. That's what he's saying. He said, now everything you need to see about God, you're seeing in me. And he's telling them to love each other to the same extent and to the same degree that he is going to love them. And they don't understand it yet because they don't even know how much he loves them. He hasn't died for them. They don't even know what's about to happen. He's saying, you got to love each other the way I've loved you. And they're like, yeah, okay, great. You know, we'll be kind to each other. Uh, we'll be friendly. Like, what do we mean here? We... What they didn't realize then, but they were going to find out soon enough, is Jesus was not saying, be kind to one another as I have been kind to you. He's not saying, be friendly or hospitable to one another. He is plainly saying to them, I'm going to die for you, and also you are going to have to let your life go. He repeats this in John 15, 12 through 15, and he goes on and he says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This week, um, my son was, was observing that the disciples always took Jesus super literally. Like he would tell a story and uh, he would say something like, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. And they were like, gross. You know, like whatever Jesus would say, they would take hyper literally, except when it came to this, when Jesus is like, you got to love each other the way I loved you, which means I'm going to give my life for you, so you ought to give your lives for each other. Now they're like, I wonder what he really means by that. <laughs> right? Like, what's, his, what's he getting at here? What, what's Jesus playing at? 
We always love to take Jesus hyper-literally, except when he's being completely plain-spoken, love each other the way that I have loved you. And so Peter jumps on this train, verse 36. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterwards. You'll come along soon enough. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Peter says, Lord, I'm in. Just tell me where. I will be there. And Jesus basically says, not so much. You're not going to last the night. The disciples at this point are growing increasingly confused, increasingly worried. They're starting to pick up on maybe the fact that this isn't going to go the way they think. Keep in mind that up until now, they were still expecting Jesus to be a political king. They were still expecting him to come and take a throne, pick up a sword, kick out the Romans, have a big military victory with a big parade. They still thought that's what it meant. When they thought of him as the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, those were all political words. Those were all speaking about kings and earthly kingdoms, and they were still expecting that. And now Jesus is saying really weird stuff like, I'm going away and you're not coming with me. Now he's saying stuff to them like, you're going to have to lay down your lives for each other the way I'm going to lay down your, my life for you. And they are confused and they are scared. And Jesus senses this. He's in the room with them. He's starting to hear him whisper and murmur. Judas is gone. Nobody knows what's up with him. And then he says to them, verse 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. Calm down, guys. It's going to be okay. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, he had just gotten done telling them a few chapters before that the work of God is to believe in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And he's basically refocusing them on that. He's saying, Believe in God and believe in me. That's the work God wants you to do right now, to believe. And then he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If we're not told you, if it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Have you ever known me to lie to you? Have you ever known me to say anything that's not true? So when I say I'm going to prepare a place for you and that my father's house are in many rooms, you can take that to the bank. You guys have never known me to lie. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? They're confused. They're lost. And Jesus is saying, trust me. I've got this. I'm preparing something for you. I'm coming back for you, and I will take you there. You know how to get there. You get there because I take you there. I am the way there. There's no path to follow. He's not going to give him a map, right? He's not putting in GPS coordinates. He says, I'll take you to where I'm going. You know the way because I'm the way. Thomas is not getting any of this. This is all lost on him. He's totally confused. Lord, just tell us straight up, where are you going? Jesus says to him, verse six, 
I am. There it is, right? There it is. Thomas, Peter, boys, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus declares himself by saying, I am. He is saying, I am God incarnate. I am the eternal God. I am. I'm the same one talking to Moses in that bush. I am. And I am the way. That is to say, I am the path. I am the strategy. I am the sum total of the moral principles, the conduit, the teachings. I am all of those things. It's not that all of those things are a way to me or a way to God. I am those things. He says, I am the truth. He's declaring himself personally to be the actual state of events. Jesus is the way things really are. When he says that he is the truth, he is not saying, I am a list of propositions, a list of rules, a list of do's and do nots, a statement of facts. He's saying that truth itself is made up of him. He's saying that the description of human life as it really is meant to be is illuminated by him. He calls himself in John 8, the light of the world. He's the one that sheds light on how things really are. That's what it means when he says he's the truth. I am the way things really are. And he juxtaposes this. He puts this up against liars. John 8, 44, he says to the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father the devil, and it is your will to do the, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is saying, I am the way things are. And liars and those that distort the way things are, their father is somebody else. Their father made up lies. And when we encounter liars and people who say things so continuously false who distort reality, we realize that those are not people that are like Jesus. There are people that are like their father. And Jesus is saying, I am truth itself. He provides the meaning for reality. And then in John 1, it says he also establishes its existence. All things were created through him. He's what things mean. And he finishes up and he says, I am the life. The life, the thing we crave. The victory over our enemy the undefeatable, undiminishable, animating essence of the universe, the enemy of our enemy, which is death. Jesus says, I am life. I am life. Jesus is what we want. He's what we want. He's not the way to get to what we want. He's actually what we want. And he's telling his disciples that. And just before what's to be the darkest hour, he's reminding them, guys, I'm what you want. I'm not just a good teacher. 
I'm not giving you steps to a happy life. I'm not your life coach. I'm not your moral example. I'm not your co-pilot. Jesus is nothing short of almighty God making an ownership claim on our destiny. The human embodiment of truth itself and the author of life. He says all that. He loads it up when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And you don't come to the Father except through me. And Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Completely lost. Completely lost. The funny thing about this verse is, uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. This is the same, the last time words like this were used were in John 6. Bobby talked about this last week. When Jesus said, hey, they're all hungry. Give them what they need to eat. And Philip's like, man, if we had like six months wages, it wouldn't be enough for us. Philip's constantly worried about whether there's enough and what's enough. And he's staring right at Jesus, like face to face, right there, author of the universe, truth itself. He's looking him right in the eye. And he says, I don't think there's enough bread. And now he says, well, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I've been with you for such a long time. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Don't you get it yet? Don't you see who I am? Can't you hear what I'm saying? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. You see, what Philip was showing to us is that there is a difference between knowing Jesus and just believing in him. They believed in Jesus. They really had. They had put their whole, they had pulled up stakes, caught off ties with their family. Like they were on, you know, on the run from the law. They were scared. <laughs> they had put everything in Jesus. They trusted him. They believed in him. But they still didn't really know him. Even after hanging out with him for years, they still didn't get it. They still didn't really know who he was. They had faith, but they even now, even then, they still didn't have that full relationship. They had done that work of God to believe in Jesus Christ. But in John 17, 3, just a couple, chap, couple minutes later, he would say, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus was saying that life, true eternal life, was found in that deep knowledge, that relationship with him. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, but whoever lives and believes in me never dies. They believed, but they weren't living yet. They weren't really fully embracing the reality of who Jesus was. They could know a lot of things about Jesus. They could spend time with Jesus, but they were not brought alive by him yet because they didn't get it. They didn't get that he was the I am, that he had been saying to them, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. 
I, at one point, as we talked about last week, he's walking on the water. He just says, I am. And they're still just like, yeah, but who? I am who? They didn't get that Jesus wasn't the way to what they wanted. Jesus was what they wanted. They still were thinking of him as a means to an end. A really great means to an end. A really great means to uh, a new kingdom. Freedom from the Romans. Glory and honor sitting at his right hand or his left hand. But they didn't really get that he was going to fulfill all of those needs. He's not how we get to what we want. Jesus is what we want. And I'm going to take a few minutes now. This is around the time, if you've ever heard me preach before, <coughs> I'll often uh, hit this point and I'll say, okay, so now what do we do with this? How do we put this into to action? And honestly, one of the most difficult things about preparing for this morning was not to just keep on going. John 14, John 15, John 16, it's incredible passages and we could just keep going through them all morning. And normally, <coughs> my, my application, the things that I would say, like, here's how we live this out. What difference does it make to us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Um, they would flow directly out of the text, and I would just pull the points. My, one of my rules of thumb is, if Jesus gives a command, then that's your application. Like, it's pretty straightforward, <laughs> simple. So normally, I would go into, hey, Jesus says we should love one another, so we should love one another. It's not it's, it's not really complicated. <laughs> um, this morning, I'm going to take a little bit of an opportunity um, to apply this passage uh, in a prophetic way to a broader uh, theme that, that we've come across, I think, um, in our modern life. Uh, we, we, it's easy to think about this concept of, you know, a prophecy of, of being like, oh, this is somebody like seeing into the future. If you actually look at God's word, mostly what, what the prophets were doing where they were reading the blessings and the curses from the law, and they were saying, uh, God was saying, if you follow my law and commandments, I will bless you and all these great things will happen, peace and prosperity and no one will be hungry. But if you oppress each other and kick out the, the foreigner and are cruel to the widow and the orphan, then a bunch of horrible things are coming. And the prophets would look at what was going on in Israel and be like, man, we sure do have a lot of hungry orphans and widows. We, still, we sure have not uh, honored God's commands. He says if we do that, there's going to be plagues and armies and all kinds of bad things. And hey, look, there's a bunch of armies coming and a bunch of plagues coming. And people would be like, whoa, how, where'd you get that from? They're like, I, honestly, I'm just reading it. Uh, that's that's really the root of prophecy is taking God's word and applying it directly to our modern life and to our modern context. Um, it's a purpose and an opportunity to provide course correction. And it also represents a form of judgment when it's ignored. So this morning, I want to be sensitive to the fact that a lot of things have been happening both inside of our body and in the world at large. And a lot of things have come together from different places and speaking about Jesus being the author and the essence of life itself <clears throat> means that this is probably a time to, to say out loud a lot of the things that have been going on um, here and elsewhere. Uh, back in November, we had a big focus and push on um, adoption and fostering and safe families. Since then, we have seen both tragedies and miracles 
in our body um, around uh, infants and, and newborn children. We're facing a national moment of sorts. A few weeks ago, there was a church shooting in Texas and two people were killed and I looked on my Facebook page and people were celebrating because the bad guy got shot and it was like, wait, but two people are dead in the middle of a worship service. Why are we so happy about this? Um, We've had violence in Iran and honestly, 20 years of never-ending war. Um, We've had just a long, long spate of police shootings of unarmed black men. We have children's children in cages. We have uh, today is the Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we think about 45 million abortions since 1970. We look at things like um, the African American infant mortality rate being double that of other groups. And all of these things have been weighing on my soul very heavily. So as I think about Jesus saying, I am the life, and I look at both our moment here in this room, and I look at our national moment and the things that we're facing, and I just think, man, we are trying to be people of life, and we live in a culture of persistent death. We live in a culture that honors and upholds death at every end. And we divvy these things up, and we pick sides we pick sides on them and all, we we separate ourselves apart on these lines and i i want this morning i hope that y'all can be patient with me and hear what i'm saying and what i'm not saying um, i'm not at all at all interested in having a political conversation about this topic though at the very end i'm going to offer a couple suggestions my goal in speaking directly at these things this morning is one just a sense of heaviness because I, I see this stuff happen. I know you guys see this stuff happening. I'm like, we, we all turn on the news. We all know what's going on in the world. Um, but my goal is the same thing that it is every single time that I get up here and speak. I'm not trying to change the United States of America or the whole world. I am incredibly interested in how we in this room live our lives how we in this room live our lives. One of the things that the Apostle Paul says about prophecy is he says it's a gift for the church and not for the world. We go around most of the time broadcasting to the world, this is how you should live. And people are like, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. So when we rightly use prophecy, we turn it in on ourselves first and we say, this is how we have to live. This is what God's word said. This is what our priorities should be. I can't answer these questions for anybody else, and I'm not going to try to. But for us this morning, I want us to think about how we be people of Jesus, people that are for Jesus, people that are for life, right here, right now, in our neighborhoods and our families. Not in the sense of a a political movement, but as people who find our identity in the author and sustainer of life itself. What does it mean for us right now to be pro-Jesus, even as we relate to all these things that are happening in the world? And the following things are things that have occurred to me. We have to expand our understanding of our goals past just one or two political issues. 
you know, the, the big one, again, being Sanctity of Life Sunday, we talk about the, um, the political pressure surrounding the legality of abortion. And I believe abortion is a deeply evil, evil thing that happens in our nation. And I think that it was something that was happening before it was ever legalized. And my concern is that we as a people focus so much on legalities of things that we never ever get at the root cause of how do we help women not have to make these choices. Whether it's legal or not, we know even when abortion was illegal, there were still millions of abortions that were occurring. The rate was lower and it was smaller, but they were still occurring. So we could end abortion legally in America and we will have done nothing to save unborn lives. It's not enough. With our own community, we have to be looking at how we, just here in this room, how we can address the burdens that are causing this plague, because it is a plague. We see millions of children lost, whole generations lost. So we have to look at ourselves. Rather than pointing our fingers at the world, we have to look at ourselves and say, are we, first of all, the kind of people that actually value family? Do we actually value children? And I look at this room and I say, I know for a fact, I see the sacrifices so many of you are making to open your homes to children that are not your own, to be safe places for families. And I say, that is good and that is right, and those are the kinds of things that we have to be doing. We have to be the kind of people that are on the front lines of taking care of women in crisis. But we also have to realize that among the primary reasons why women seek abortions are economic factors. It's really easy to, be, to say, hey, politically, I oppose abortion. But at the same time, things like family leave, things like giving women space to have children and be able to resume their careers, these are pro-life issues too. Because they keep babies alive. When we allow for women to have protection and contraception and good, and, good, and good prenatal care, we actually start addressing the roots because it's not enough just to outlaw something. There's lots of things that are illegal and they still happen. But if we really care about life, if we really care about unborn life, we have to be bigger than that, just us. Forget everybody else, just us. We've got to be taking care of women in need. We've got to be the kind of people that call out sexual violence. One of the major causes of abortion, you know, we talk about, you know, something like 10% of abortions. So you feel bad about 40 million abortions. Well, 4 million of them have to do with rape and incest. And the church as a whole, but especially this church, can't be the kind of people that turn our back on sexual violence. We have to be the kind of people that create safe places for women to report abuse. And we have to take it seriously. And we have to call it out. And we can't hide it. Because when you hide sexual abuse, you lead to more dead children. That's a pro-life issue too. 
And I know this stuff is like big and this is heavy, but when you think about the totality of what it means to be in favor of Jesus, to value the sanctity of human life, which by the way, when we talk about the sanctity of life, that's one of those $30 church words that means life has a holy purpose, that every life is ordained by God for some purpose and that there's some holy purpose to it. And if we're not protecting the vulnerable, we're not really for life. Another of the major causes of abortion, and this will be true whether Roe v. Wade is ever overturned or not, another of the major causes are uh, women not feeling supported by their partner or not having a partner. So our young men, our young men, guys, you can't be reckless with women. You can't get women pregnant. You can't leave them. You can't just be scared of being a baby daddy. It's not enough. Because when we do, when we have a culture that doesn't value women, men, the end result is dead children. Younger men, younger married men, get jobs, work, be industrious. One of the major causes of abortion are younger married women who don't feel like they're in an economic position yet to have children, and they're married and their husbands aren't working, or they're not taking care of themselves, they're not being wise, and women feel pressured into a position where they're going to have abortion. So men, take responsibility. Men that already have kids... Another of the major causes of abortion are women who feel like they have too many kids that can't support the ones they already have. Take responsibility. Talk with your family. Like, just us. Like, let's us do what we're supposed to do. Let's us be the kind of people, the kind of men, the kind of women that take responsibility for our own actions, that realize that this is not just a women's issue, this is a men's issue, and that men, we cause abortions. And let's not do that. Let's not be the kind of people that cause the 10 or 15% of abortions that women get because they are terrified to tell their parents or their community that they're pregnant. Let's not be people of judgment and fear. We all sin. We all mess up. And some of our sins are hidden and some of them are public. But we should not be raising daughters who are afraid of us. Dads, moms, we should not be raising sons and daughters who are afraid to come and tell us that something's gone wrong. Because when we do, we contribute to 40 million dead children. Being pro-life, being people that protect and value the sanctity of human life is a lot more than just standing against Roe v. Wade. It is a holistic look at valuing children, valuing women, valuing life, and providing ways out to protect people. It also means that rather than worrying about trying to close abortion clinics down legally, I want them to go out of business because it's no longer financially viable for them. I want them to have so little business, so little chance to profit and make money. I want, I want, I think they're butcher shops. I want them closed, but I don't really care if we close them down legally, if they just pop up again illegally. 
I don't want people to have to seek abortions. I want something different, something better, at least from us. Pro, being in favor of life and being in favor of Jesus, it means loving and caring for children after, after they are born. Adoption, safe families, fostering. It means we work to improve prenatal care. It means that we support people whose lives are under constant financial and, and economic and societal stress. It means that we don't support children being kept in cages, waiting immigration trials. It means that we are working to end these things because we think their lives are holy. We think unborn lives are holy. We think born lives are holy. It means that we think adult lives are holy. It means we're not the kind of people that just support endless war, that are comfortable with a trillion dollars a year being spent on war, and that war is just all we are about. We can't say that we're for Jesus and also like we're real good with endless drone strikes. It means we reject firearms as wish fulfillment. I'm not getting into to hunting or whether you need to own a gun for safety. We're not, gonna have, we're not having that conversation right now. But I do know, because I look at my Facebook page, I know some of us just own a billion guns and it's wish fulfillment. We wish Call of Duty was real. We do. We do. You all know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And we say, hey, I'm pro-life or I'm pro-Jesus. But man, I'd really like to open this AK on somebody and be able to get away with it. This is a real thing. And I'm not talking to anyone out there. I'm just talking to us. I'm just talking to us. There are serious flaws in the way that we incarcerate people. Man, you want to do something about abortion? How about ending mass incarceration of African-American men? You want to have women feel like there's somebody there to be with them and to help them raise a child? Then we've got to stop incarcerating everybody. We, we have to stop locking people up and throwing away the key and wondering why so many women wind up needing feeling like they need to go pursue abortion. These things are pro-life things. And for us, I want us to have the conversations and to be looking each other in the eye and saying, what do we do about these things? And I know we are. And part of the reason why I'm so excited to talk to you guys and why I feel like we can even have this conversation out loud is because I look around and I know many of you are passionate about these things, actively engaged in trying to save lives. That is beautiful. And we can do more. And we have to be able to talk about it. We have to say it out loud because these things aren't and shouldn't be political things for us. They should flow naturally out of our love for Jesus and our choices to identify with him. We've let them become political because in our society, we're way more interested in our power and our influence than we are in him and we are in his kingdom. So what do we do? What do we do? And these things are, honestly, they're my best suggestion. I am not 
ordering anybody to do anything. I'm not putting on my pastor hat and being like, thou shalt. That's not what we're doing this morning. We're just honestly looking at the world around us and opening the conversation with each other about what are we going to do about it? What are we going to tell our kids to do about it? How are we going to live? So I want us to be pro-Jesus. I want us to be pro-life, not just anti-abortion. Abortion is evil, and it is wicked, and I do believe that. And it is a scourge on our nation. And we will be judged for it. But I want us to be more than about just ending the legality of it. I want us to have a holistic understanding of why we value human flourishing. So let's be for life. Let's not get discouraged. Honestly, we've been in this tension, this holding pattern in our country for like 40 years, and I think it's because neither political party is interested in ending abortion in any way. I think they like to weaponize it, and I think that two sides hold it in tension so they can get away with a lot of other stuff. So let's not get discouraged because we can do a lot to reduce the number of abortions and the need for it with no political action whatsoever. So don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't feel like, man, fat cats in Washington are, don't listen or they don't whatever. It's okay. There's plenty we can do, starting with monitoring our own lives, starting with being the kind of people that raise kids that are both responsible but also honest and also willing to come and admit their their mistakes to us, that we take care of each other, that we take care of each other's children, that we provide space for one another when we have economic needs so that no woman in our care ever feels like her only choice is to end her pregnancy. If nothing else, maybe that's something we can attain to, that no one in our community would ever need to feel that. And then we extend the boundaries of our community through the knowledge of the author of life, so that encompasses more and more women. And what everybody else does, everybody else does. But as for us, we can be people of life. Let's not be anybody's tool. Let's not be anybody's tool. Politicians have carved us up along church lines, along racial lines, and they've used us. They dangle pieces of pro-lifeness at us and say, well, if you... We'll vote for this if you don't pay attention to anything else we do. Don't be anybody's automatic vote. Don't let anybody feel like, ha-ha, I, I can see their first and last name. I know their ethnicity. I, I have on some survey that they attend church. I know exactly what I have to do to pander to them. They'll never hold me accountable. Don't be, don't be anybody's automatic vote. Call your representatives on all of these issues. Be aggressive in telling them that life issues are important to you. But there's also, all of these things are also life issues. That all of these things will reduce the number of abortions. That will reduce our society's dependence on death. Remember our king and his mission. God is about revealing himself to this world. That's the whole glory thing that we started with. God is about revealing himself to this world. He is about expanding his rule and his reign. We are a kingdom living in occupied territory. 
Let's worry less about what the occupied rebels are doing and way more about what life is like in God's kingdom. And let's make it so attractive and so different and so at odds with what the world is doing that people say, oh, there's truth there and there's life there. That looks like a way to something. They've got what I want. Not safety, not security, not healthy, stable families. They've actually got Jesus. Because he's the way to what we want. You know I was going to come back to this. We follow Jesus' command to love. Like, I mean, honestly, that's just right straight up there in the text. We love each other till the end. We sacrifice economically and physically for each other. If you want to be a people of life, if you want to be the kind of people that are preventing abortions from happening in your community, it's, it's going to take something out of you. And I look around this room and I know how much some of you have laid on the line. It is going to take something out of you. It's going to mean housing children. It's going to mean finding apartments for women. It's going to mean providing jobs. It's going to mean a lot of stuff and it's going to cost you. So follow Jesus' commands. If you want the world to know that you're with the author of life, you're going to have to lay yours down because that's what he did. Jesus is not how we get what we want. He's what we want. I am so, so glad to be able to say these things out loud to you. And we can talk about all these things later and what they mean. And I hope you do. I hope we have these conversations and MCs and discipleship groups. I have zero idea how any of you should vote in any election. And I'm not going to pretend to tell you. What I do know is, regardless of how we engage with the world politically, I want us to be different in here. I want this community People in relationship with God under the rule of God. I want us to look different. I want us to look like the author of life. So this morning, as we come and we celebrate communion, it's a proclamation of his death. That's what he said. When you do this, when you take my flesh, which is this bread, when you drink this cup, which is my blood, you proclaim my death until I come back. And we know he is coming back because he is life itself. And so we come and we do this each week because we are for Jesus and we are for life in all the things that that means. And so even in the midst of one of the darkest and heaviest hours and times for our church, when the reality of death is close to us, when the value of our beloved children is right there in our face, we realize that we are for life and for its author. And we celebrate him because he's truth and he's the way and he's life and he's what we want. Let's pray. Jesus God, you you said it directly to us. You're coming back for us. You're preparing a way for us. And you'll bring us safe home. Jesus, I love you. We love you. Lord, I pray that we will know you, that we will see you, 
and in doing so that we will see the Father. Help us to be people that the whole world looks at and says, wow, they're disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of life. We love you. Amen.